Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, Conversations about connecting and communicating. So in 2012, I had devised an experiment in which we took out a single uh, neuron from uh, the brain of a mouse and we put them in a dish in the, in the presence of a single one of these uh, neuropod cells from the gut of a mouse. And it was so striking that not only the cells it became, they recognized each other and they got closer, but they actually recapitulated this gut-brain connection in the dish. Once they are physically plugged to each other, then the communication happens, you know, from the milliseconds to over time. And in fact, I remember keeping those cells together in, in that microscope uh, for five days, I think, four or five days. And then I had to end the experiment because otherwise uh, it was becoming too expensive uh, paying for the microscope hours, right? <laughs> That's Diego Bojorquez. And the remarkable experiment he remembers so vividly did much to establish what he called the gut-brain connection, that our stomachs talk to our brains instantly and constantly, giving a whole new meaning to the idea of a gut feeling. This is a fascinating bit of work that you do because it's something that we experience every day, but we never think about it, about how when food gets into our stomach, how the brain knows it's there and knows how much we should eat and, how, and what we should crave next and that kind of thing. I never, I don't think about it. And you've thought about it in my new detail. The story about how you got interested in this subject through somebody you knew who was obese and had an operation. How did that go? I heard a story from uh, this friend that went through gastric bypass surgery to resolve her issues with uh, obesity. And she said that uh, the, the surgery, the bypass surgery, had a, reduced her body weight by 40%. Mm. So you're talking about the person that was weighing about 300 pounds before the, uh, the surgery. 
And so right there, it was about 120 pounds. So that was pretty striking. The other thing she said is that within one week, her diabetes was resolved. I didn't know much about the, the, the biology of diabetes, but I knew that it was a major health uh, concern. Um, but the, the, the most striking thing was that she said that before the surgery, she could not even look at sunny side up eggs, that just looking at the yolk will make her queasy. But after the surgery, she said, uh, please explain to me how is it that not only I can eat eggs, but I actually crave the yolk. Uh, <laughs> so, so for me, it was... Uh, that's, a, that's a signal yeah. that something needs to be understood better there. Uh, absolutely. And I, I, I thought people must know these, like they, they must have been studying how is it that the gut is driving uh, brain function and behaviors. And when I started reading about it, uh, unfortunately, like uh, there was not much knowledge around it. And I think that primarily was because of uh, the tools uh, for biology to start to carve out this knowledge uh, were not there yet. So what she was experiencing was this intimate connection the gut has with the brain. Something had changed in the brain's telling the gut what it wanted. It didn't want eggs before the operation, and it did want eggs after the operation. So that's a, a wonderful mystery. And I, I love the idea that that exploration, which hadn't been done in the kind of detail that you did it in until you came along, was predicted in 1853, the connection between the brain and the stomach. That was amazing. What was his name? Sidney Whitney, a lawyer and a self-described uh, foodie. <laughs> and he wasn't a doctor at all. And the other one is that the book itself is written from the perspective of the stomach. Right. The name of the book is Memoirs of a Stomach. Let me read a, a paragraph from it because it's, so, it's such a, an insightful look from way back in 1853. He's writing as the stomach saying... Between myself and that individual, Mr. Brain, there was established a double set of electrical wires, by which means I could, with the greatest ease and rapidity, tell him all the occurrences of the day as they arrived, and he also could impart to me his own feelings and impressions. That double set of electrical wires, people in 1853 weren't that accustomed to electricity. How did, what made him think that there was the connection, an electrical connection? between the stomach and the brain. People knew already about the, the famous pneumogastric nerve, nerve, which pneumo is like meaning uh, that innervates the, the lung and the, and the viscera. <laughs> and then later on, uh, it was uh, more popularly known as the vagus nerve because it's this literally meandering nerve that goes from um, the brainstem, the base of the, of the brain, uh, inside into the uh, abdominal cavity and then connects with all of the organs inside of the abdominal cavity. So what's going on in there? Is it actually an electronic communication? What's going on? You know, what is fascinating is that we knew since uh, the early 1900s, we knew f uh, we, have a, we had a gut feeling, so to speak, about 50% yeah. of the story. <laughs> And the 50% of the story is that uh, we knew that when food enters into our stomach or, and our intestine, uh, after being digested, it stimulates the release of some hormones, 
some peptides that are released from the wall of the intestine. And these peptides diffuse into uh, the tissues and also diffuse into the bloodstream. And the idea was that passively, eventually those peptides get to the brain and that's how we feel full, right? And that is certainly uh, 50% of the story. Like uh, these peptides are necessary for us uh, to feel full, sated, uh, and some of those actually participate in long-term uh, behaviors like the memory of food, they coordinate the motility of uh, uh, the digestive tract and other inter-organ communications. Now, uh, partly of why uh, we believe that it was that way is because I love the way that uh, you opened this, this conversation. We often don't think about uh, food, you know, or when we drink something. After we drink something, we just forget about it and we let, uh, I think that Mark Twain put it in a very nice uh, terms. He said something along the lines of, uh, part of the success in life is to eat the right food and uh, let it fight inside, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just because we don't think about it. Yeah. Uh, and because we don't think about it is that I believe that we also haven't probed deeper about it. And we did not think that the gut also needs an instant sense, just like the eyes or the nose or the tongue or the ear to recognize a stimuli. Because often what is happening here in the, in the head, the senses that are here in the head, we associate them with a cognitive function, something that we are aware immediately that is happening. But even the, the senses here in the head, uh, a large percentage of that effect is a subconscious. Only a fraction of what we are perceiving is actually represented in the brain. And likewise, uh, when it comes to food and when it comes to the gut, uh, what we didn't envision is that the gut also had a very fast signaling, just like uh, Sidney Whitney put it in there, uh, a way to communicate with ease and rapidity from gut to brain, uh, because the gut also needs to be able to make sense not only of the type of food that we had eaten, but also if it is good or if it's bad for our system, right? Because if it's bad, one will say that we, we would like to get it out immediately, whether it is uh, uh, frontwards, through the mouth or backwards, uh, but we need to get it out, right? Now, you've been exploring the role that bacteria play in this, this gut-brain connection, right? Yes, and, and we know, so in the last 10 years, there has, there has been a tremendous effort to understand how is it that bacteria inside of our digestive tract and throughout our body is affecting our, 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 uh, our livelihood, so to speak. Um, and if we think from the basic, uh, the most basic perspective that bacteria like us or like every single cell in our body needs to eat. So therefore, they are going to have a motivation to get the right type of food, right? And if they are inside of our uh, digestive tract, in, inside of our stomach or intestine, and they need to have access to specific nutrients, I suspect that they will have developed the, the ability to influence us uh, 
uh, in, a, in such a way that they are able to get those nutrients. So there are oh, some oh. bacteria that are associated for a, with our ability to eat perhaps more sugars, you know. So the bacteria, this is really fascinating. The bacteria want as much sugar as they can get, and they somehow tell the brain more sugar. So we seem to be, at the moment, in the position of the woman who had the operation for obesity and suddenly craved the yolk of an egg. We are more and more craving sugars. If we eat simpler foods and eat less sugar, will we find the craving subsiding or will we still be attacked by these signals from some bacteria who want us to eat more sugar, for instance? Yes. So there is, of course, there is a layer of complexity. And as, as you mentioned uh, in here, we are just getting to, scientifically speaking, to the stage where we can understand what are the cells that are recognizing the food that we're eating, that are driving our desire to consume certain foods. So I'm interested in knowing how this is happening. What's, what's going on in a little more detail? And you discovered these little guys called neuropods, right? Uh, that's correct. Yes, uh, uh, me and my, my team uh, at Duke University, we discovered them following a, a, a lead um, so I have said earlier that what we knew since the early 1900s, it was the 50% of the story, the, the hormone part, right? And it particularly I highlighted in there that one of the things that we were missing were tools. And by the early 2000s, it became very um, uh, practical to visualize cells inside of, at least inside of mice using fluorescence uh, proteins. So there are these glowing proteins that are produced by marine algae that now can be engineered in mice genetically. And by that, we can see the cells. And using one of these mice uh, in 2011 was the first time that I made an observation that these uh, uh, cells that recognize food in the intestine, they had a very long and extended arm. It was a very elegant arm that they had at the base. I saw a video during one of your talks, and I could see what I suppose was one of these cells, a neuropod, getting close to a nerve cell and reach out this arm, this little pathway. It was uncanny. How did it know where it was going, that it had a, something to contact? Do you know that yet? Uh, yes, Alan, you're, uh, you're talking about this, um, this experiment that it took, us, uh, it took me like a year and a half, I think, to uh, imagine it first uh, before making it happen. Because the question was that, uh, how is it that, exactly what you're, what you're um, posing, the question that you're posing, how is it that a cell in the gut could connect to uh, the brain via a nerve, right? Yeah. So in 2012, uh, although we published this, this experiment in 2015, but in 2012, I had devised an experiment in which we took out a single uh, neuron from uh, the brain of a mouse and we put them in a dish in the, in the presence of a single one of these a neuropod cells from the gut of a mouse. And then 
we simply just put a little dish in an incubator and videotape the interaction of the of the cells. Yeah. And what I was expecting it was that they will get close or you know something that we could say like it looks like they are communicating. But instead what we got it was uh something so striking uh, as you mentioned is that and I still remember it was a it was a Saturday on uh, in June I believe it was June 27 or something like that because I went onto the microscope and I started to pass the images. And it was so striking that not only the cells it became, cl they recognized each other and they got closer, but they actually recapitulated this gut-brain connection in the dish. So all you had was a nerve cell and this sensor cell. And the sensor cell just reaches out, bang, lands right in the nerve cell and communicates yes, so to the brain in, almost instantaneously, right? It's in milliseconds. Yeah, so once they are connected, once they are physically plugged to each other, then the communication happens, you know, from the milliseconds to over time. And in fact, I remember keeping those cells together in, in that microscope uh, for five days, I think, four or five days. And then I had to ex end the experiment because otherwise uh, it was becoming too expensive uh, paying for the microscope hours, right? <laughs> 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 but I wanted to preserve. I remember I was like, how can I keep this going for, uh, for more months? You know? <laughs> when we come back from our break, Diego Borjorquez tells me that the gut not only sends useful signals up to the brain, but also things that are far less welcome, like pathogens causing neurodegenerative diseases. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit Sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do, because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store.
What will you find? Diego Bojorquez and I were talking earlier about the guy in the 1850s who suggested the stomach talk to the brain via electrical wires. Diego's experiment with his neuropods and nerve cells in a dish showed that they happily connect, and instead of an electrical wire conveying the neuropods' messages to the brain, they're conveyed by the vagus nerve, the long nerve that connects the brain to much of the rest of the body. Here's Diego again. Yes, and so our ability to understand that our gut and our brain are exchanging information in real time through direct pathways, I think that it has at least two broad implications. One is that a, a big adma- advancement in nutrition is when we realized in the 1940s, 1950s that uh, a, we, or animals, in experimental animals, that we consume to meet certain uh, needs, c- certain caloric needs. And then the discussion around uh, nutrition focuses around calories, right? Uh. Uh, unfortunately, what we have uh, uh, neglected in there is to recognize that uh, while we count calories, not all nutrients provide the same value, right? So it's not, ne- it's not uh, important to only count calories when the source of the calories are not healthy. And what this connection brings in is for us to become aware that the gut is able to recognize each one of the specific nutrients and based on the combination of them is that continues to provide our reinforcement and our desire to consume certain type of foods. So it's really bringing awareness that is not only calories, but the type of food that we consume that is important. Now, we've been talking about nutrition and I believe you've said that the circuitry involved in this process can be important in illnesses like Parkinson's. How does that work? Yeah, so if I could bring there um, the second layer. So the first one, in terms of um, the type of food that we eat, is very important. But the second layer is that uh, there has been quite a bit of uh, studies uh, uh, showing that there is that brain um, diseases that are often associated with the brain that actually begin in the periphery. Like, for instance, uh, in Parkinson's, uh, a Parkinson's or symptoms of pa- Parkinson's or evidence or uh, a, some accumulation of pla- uh, plaques uh, can show up in the periphery, in the gastrointestinal tract and other organs in the periphery, well before they show up in the brain. And in fact, uh, uh, some symptoms of uh, constipation or, or other GI issues uh, can, can, can show up in patients well before they uh, show up in the brain. Now, this direct connectivity of the neuropod cells with a vagus nerve with the vagus neurons that go up into the brain, what brings in is the awareness that a pathogen, if it, if it can enter one of these cells and it has the possibility of jumping a synaptic connection, the connection onto the nerve, then once it has passed onto the nerve, it has a direct access into the central nervous system. So by knowing the path, now in the future, new approaches could arise to be able to prevent the spread of pathogens from gut to brain. 
So those are like two very di distinct dimensions of what it, this connectivity, this physical connectivity brings in. One is the, the, the fact of perceiving the specific type of foods. And the other one is that this could also be a path for pathogens to access the central nervous system. So I'm not sure I'm understanding this. Correct me on this. Sounds like you're saying that the molecule of a pathogen can actually travel up the vagal nerve. But I thought there were impulses that traveled up the nerve rather than molecules. So uh, uh, you're, uh, you're correct, Alan. Uh, both of them can travel up the vagus nerve. Ah. Uh, the electrical impulses is one way that they that communicate. And pathogens, they have learned to hijack the, the, uh, the uh, machinery, so to speak, the molecular machinery that a cell uses to transport cargo up and down the, the nerve uh, to be able to get a, a ride onto the neuron and then up into the brain. So by that, they can spread, you know. Um, that's like the most clear example of that is, for instance, uh, a prion disease. What, a prion you know, disease? It, yeah, prion disease is uh, like uh, a mad cow disease. Yeah. Usually is associated with consuming a tainted meat, right? But how does it get from eating the meat up into the brain? Uh. Well... Uh, once the meat gets inside of the digestive tract, then these uh, uh, prion-like proteins can enter this, this circuitry and then like travel up into the brain, diffusing to the brain. So d by using the vagal nerve, does it bypass the blood-brain barrier? That's correct. So one of the, the most straight, direct shot uh, up into the brain is the vagus nerve because the vagus nerve, uh, the neurons part of the neurons that make the vagus nerve are right, a, right are in the neck and they project a very long a, a axon, an arm, a neuronal arm that goes into the viscera, into the stomach on one side. And the other axon that they extend is directly into the brainstem. So they form a direct link from the surface of the intestine or the stomach into the brainstem. And by that, they bypass the, uh, the, the blood-brain barrier. Right. Sorry. There's so much going on in this conversation between the stomach and the brain, or the, the gut and the brain, including, I think I heard you say in a talk, that the gut is a major regulator of motivational and emotional states. And we talk about a gut feeling, but how does the, this interaction give us emotional states as well? Uh, yeah, that's correct. And, and one, one clear example of that is being hungry, right? Uh, being uh, angry and hungry at the same time mm. uh, that we usually associate with, you know, lack of food, making us, uh, putting us in a, in a bad mood. But what we have uh, thought is that normally all of that happens at the level of the brain. But what we're realizing is that the ability of the gut to recognize the food is sufficient to tell the brain, I already got the food that we need, and then by that, we will uh, calm down. You know, another example and uh, area, very nice area of research that is emerging, is how is it that the food that we eat is directly connected to uh, a sleep? And there are some new studies emerging that in not only uh, a, this certain types of food that we eat 
are associated with the, the amount of sleep that we get, but also how deep uh, we sleep. And that seems to be uh, related to the uh, excitatory ability, how excited is the gut. Therefore, there is this very tight connection between our emotional well-being and our mental state, normally like a sleep that we think is all in the head, and the viscera and how it is, how well our viscera is feeling, right? This is really wonderful. It sounds like your work has opened a door on so many aspects of our lives that it's hard to imagine where this is going to go next. It's fascinating. Thank you, Alan. We always end our show with seven quick questions, roughly related to communication. Are you game? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's see if I can, uh, I will attempt to answer. Okay. First question is not necessarily directed at your interest in what your work involves, but just in general. What do you wish you really understood? One of the things that I wish I will really understood is uh, consciousness and our perception of how uh, imagination works. Mm. How is it that things trigger our imagination and then we become conscious of that imagination? When you figure that out, come back. <laughs> How do you tell someone? I said, uh, if I if I could, Alan, I will say that because uh, I always thought that consciousness was up in the brain until I start to listen to my bladder at uh, five a.m. Right, <laughs> and it will go on, and you have to get out. <laughs> and now I know that is uh, the same thing for my dog because at five a.m. he's like barking at me, like let me out. You know? <laughs> Second question. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Wow. I think that when somebody has formed an image in their mind that there is a fact, I don't think that you can win that battle. <laughs> oh, that's the most, <laughs> the most despairing answer to that question I've got yet. <laughs> Next one. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? What is this stranger question? Um, I don't know. I think that everything is it's game. I I, I haven't heard. Uh, eh, no, no. Uh, I haven't. I don't have one that jump. Okay, good. Jump good. to me. That's an answer in itself. What's how? How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> Uh, I, you know, guiding a, a seminar or something like that is always a challenge. I think that raising, uh, just making, telling that the, the time is up and that you got to move on, it's better, like front and center. So I picture you at a cocktail party and somebody's in their eighth minute of a monologue yeah. and you say, your time is up. <laughs> Sometimes better, right? Sounds. I'm going to try that. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a true conversation with that person? A true conversation. Uh, maybe this is because I come from outside uh, this country, so I grew up in Ecuador. Uh, it has always started, a lot of the conversations is like, hi, where are you coming from? Yeah. 
And then it's, it's amazing like where things take you. Because people love to talk from uh, where they have been in, not necessarily physically, but in places, ah, right? Yeah. Yeah. What gives you confidence? Wow, Alan. <laughs> We're getting deep here. <laughs> um, uh, context drives the meaning of content, right? Breathing gives me confidence. You know, <laughs> if I'm able to breathe, I think that that gives me uh, the it gives me the confidence to step forward and keep walking. You know, <laughs> that's a Zen-like answer. I'm going to leave that at where it is. Final question: What book changed your life? Oh, um, a few come to mind. Certainly, I resonate from Nancy Duarte. 2007, I had an insight, or I realized that uh, communication was extremely important. And I thought uh, somebody must have studied this subject, of course. Uh, I was just beginning my life here as a, in, in the United States. And I, I ran into the work of Nancy Duarte, and she wrote this book, Resonate. A very simple book, um, uh, but very insightful. And then I understood that uh, talking from the perspective of the audience was uh, the most important thing. That the speaker was not the the speaker was the mentor of the message, not the main point of the message. That's great. That that's uh, it. It falls on really happy ears, as has this whole conversation. <laughs> thank you so much, Diego. It was great talking with you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Diego Bojorquez grew up in Ecuador, where until his early 20s, he worked raising livestock on his family's farm. His interest in agronomy led eventually to studying how the presence of food in the gut is sensed by the brain. Since 2010, he's worked at Duke University, where he is associate professor of neurobiology. You can see the video he described in our talk, showing a mouse neuropod connecting to a brain cell, at his lab's website, gutbrains.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kate Bowler. Kate was one of our very first guests on Clear and Vivid over three years ago. She talked then in a surprisingly uplifting way about living month to month with stage four cancer. Today, she has a new book out called No Cure for Being Human, and she's as buoyant and funny and insightful as she was back in July of 2018. It's almost like if we all have in our lives, 
you know, the weight of the past and the weight of the present and the weight of the future, the people who dump too much weight onto the future forget then that that all of us still need the, the beauty and the importance of the now. And also we need to be able to look back into our past and think, uh, like little breadcrumbs, where was hope and beauty already there? Like, I love being able to look through a, a photo book, especially when I'm scared or things are just really hard. I love being able to look into old photos and think, um, I don't have to be hopeful in this moment. Like, look at all this beauty. Like, that stuff is already mine. What a gift. Self-described incurable optimist Kate Bowler. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>